Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 9 through 13 to open up. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, by no means referring to this world's immoral people or to the greedy and the swindlers or to the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what is it to me to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside? But Yahweh judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. Yahweh bless his word to our hearts this day. In last week's lesson, we examined Elijah's actions in 1 Kings 18 verse 40, where he executed the 450 prophets of Baal at the Brook Kishon. And I showed where Elijah was obeying Yahweh's instructions found in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 11, and Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. Those texts were written to be carried out in the theocracy of Israel. Theocracy, once again, is a government that is to be ruled by the law of Yahweh. When a person committed a sin in that theocracy that was a capital crime, the way to handle it was capital punishment. We call it the death penalty. But there were conditions. Let's read again Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. If a man or woman among you in one of your towns that Yahweh your mighty one will give you is discovered doing evil in the sight of Yahweh your mighty one and violating his covenant and has gone to worship other gods by bowing down to the sun, moon, or all the stars in the sky, which I have forbidden. Take note, that's one condition. Here's a capital crime. First and second commandment transgression, which has to do with idolatry, other mighty ones. Verse 4, and if you are told or hear about it, you must investigate it thoroughly. There's another condition. First we have the capital crime, now we have a thorough investigation. You don't just start chunking rocks at somebody. You don't just start jumping to conclusions. There's a thorough investigation. If the report turns out to be true that this detestable thing has happened in Israel... You must bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and stoned them to death. The one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here's another condition. Multiple eyewitnesses were required to put someone to death. I mean, if you're putting somebody to death, you are taking someone's life. So Yahweh takes it very serious, even when the penalty, capital punishment is carried out. You want to have at least two if not more, witnesses. The end of verse 6 says, no one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. And then verse 7, the witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And there's another condition. The first ones to throw the stones in the stoning penalty is the eyewitnesses. And after that, the hands of all the people, you must purge the evil from you. So this text aligns with what we read last week in the book of Deuteronomy 13 
where a family member or a close friend came to you secretly and they tried to entice you and say, let's go worship another mighty one, a foreign mighty one, a heathen mighty one that we've not known, that our fathers have not known. Let's worship and serve them. Once again, that's first and second commandment transgression. So the penalty for such, so long as the conditions in the law were followed, was death. Deuteronomy 17 verse 7, here at the bottom, says you must purge the evil from you. Now, I want to watch just a short clip, a short video that I came across where a modern Bible theologian, much to my surprise, by the way, sums up the correct biblical position on capital punishment. When I came across the video, I did not expect this particular theologian to answer the question in the way that he did. Let's take a look at it today. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. So what is the Bible's position on capital punishment? Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he him. So capital punishment should be given for capital crimes. It was that way before the law. Genesis 9-6 is before the law in Exodus chapter uh, 20. It was that way after the law. The government has the power of the sword, Romans 13. That's capital punishment. They don't bear the sword in vain, Paul said in that passage. Paul himself said, if I've committed a crime worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. So he he was willing to submit to the capital authority of Rome. And just think of this. If capital punishment were not in effect in the first century, Jesus would not have been able to die for our sins. In fact, the very principle behind the substitutionary atonement is the same principle of capital punishment, life for life. Jesus gave his life for our lives. I thought that was a pretty good answer. Norm Geisler there. I wasn't expecting the answer, so I was glad to see the video. So, after the last lesson preparation, the last sermon prep that I did, I asked myself this question that I have on the screen. Apart from the civil sanctions that should still be carried out on a governmental level, is there anything else that we might learn from these commands or judgments? Is there an application of these laws in Deuteronomy to us in the New Covenant Church or New Covenant Congregation? And these questions led me to the last sentence in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which was our opening text. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 13, the last sentence says, Put away the evil person from among yourselves. Now, I had noticed a parallel between Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 5.13 before. But I just, years ago, I cataloged it in my mind like I do with so many things because I can't study everything at one time. So I cataloged it in my mind. I never gave it much in-depth thought. But when I began preparing last week's lesson on 1 Kings 18 verse 40 where Elijah executes the 450 prophets of Baal, I did not have 1 Corinthians 5 anywhere on my radar when I began to prepare that lesson. But when I finished preparing the lesson, it led my mind back to 1 Corinthians 5. And I feel that this is a great place to take a little break from 1 Kings and to move into some New Covenant, New Testament teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 and also in Matthew chapter 18. So this teaching is going to be more of a Bible study. 
And it's going to take a few messages for me to do it justice. And my hope and prayer is that you learn something. I love to learn. You learn something and you better understand how parts of the Bible relate or intertwine with one another. And then after you learn and understand, you put into practice what you've learned. You say, Brother Matthew, how am I going to put this into practice? Keep listening and we'll get to studying from here for the rest of the lesson. So the parallel between the two passages is the key point. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. Word for word. It's no coincidence. It's not a paraphrase. It's an exact quotation of the Greek Septuagint, the Greek text of Deuteronomy 17, 7, and 1 Corinthians 5, 13. So Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, the law pertaining to capital punishment. You know, that Paul that some Hebrew roots groups say was antinomian or against Yahweh's law. Well, here he quotes Yahweh's law and he applies it to the New Covenant congregation. Now, the application that Paul gives is not one-to-one identical with the application in the theocracy of Israel. But he carries over the principle of the commandment in Old Covenant Israel, and he brings it into the New Covenant congregation. So, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.13, this is how it says in the Greek, and then so I won't be guilty, I'll interpret it into the English, okay? <laughs> so Paul writes in Greek, Exiro ton paneros ek human altos. That's 1 Corinthians 5.13, the last sentence. And then look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. When we look at the Greek text of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 5.13, and then the Greek text of Deuteronomy in the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 17.7, Paul gives an almost identical quotation. The only variance that I can see is the tense of the first Greek word, exiro. Exiro is the word that means to remove or to put away. And the Septuagint has exirais, but the meaning is still the same. It's still to remove or to put away. So the point is, is that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he had in his mind the law of Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. That law that we read at the beginning about the witnesses, the thorough investigation, capital punishment. Look at it in English. Brenton's translation of the Septuagint. Deuteronomy 17, 7. So shalt thou remove the evil one from among yourselves. Now what was Moses talking about there? putting somebody to death for a capital crime, okay? Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5.13, reading from the King James Version, more literal translation, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. If you'll notice, if you can kind of notice from the top to the bottom, look at the, the 1 Corinthians 5 text where it says put away. That's equivalent with the Deuteronomy text where it says remove. Put away, remove. Notice the evil one. In Deuteronomy 17, that wicked person, 1 Corinthians 5, from among yourselves, Deuteronomy 17, from among yourselves, 1 Corinthians 5. Now those are English translations. The Greek is almost identical. But the English translation you can see is parallel. It's a perfect match. I have no doubt that Paul, being a devout reader of and keeper of the Old Testament law, and having the Greek Bible, the Greek Old Testament, Available during his lifetime, I have no doubt 
that he was quoting Deuteronomy 17, verse 7 in that passage. Now, in the case of Deuteronomy 17, we have a person inside Old Covenant Israel who is actively trying to entice the nation to worship other gods. Under Israel's theocracy, they were to be executed. That's what Elijah did in 1 Kings 18, verse 40. In the case of 1 Corinthians 5, what we have is a person who is living in or remaining in a certain sin. And they're unrepentant. Now, under the New Covenant Church, they were to be excommunicated from the congregation. This is what Paul was directing the Corinthians to do. Paul took the capital punishment law in Deuteronomy and applied it in principle to excommunication, putting away a person in the New Covenant congregation. Now, I want to begin to explain this in more detail, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read it. Paul writes, It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even condoned among the Gentiles, a man is living with his father's wife. So Paul begins by saying that what he writes about first is happening among you, that is among the church, and that it is widely reported. The meaning there is that it's well known or it's out in the open. It's not hearsay. It's not gossip. It's not a possibility. It's fact. There are multiple credible eyewitnesses to this. Then you have two English words, sexual immorality, and they stem from one Greek word that is porneia. You'll see this Greek word translated into English in the older King James Version as fornication. Some people limit the word porneia to one sin, as people often do with the term fornication. They think it means one particular thing. If you take the time to study this word carefully, you will see that the word porneia in Greek covers many sexual immoralities. Porneia actually covers all sex outside of marriage. It's not limited to one particular sin, and it's interesting that you can prove this from verse 1 by itself. I want you to follow this. Notice that Paul says, There is sexual immorality among you, and the kind, notice that, the kind of sexual immorality that is not even condoned among the Gentiles. He then lists this particular kind of porneia. He points out a specific kind of porneia, and that shows that porneia covers more than just one kind of sin. Hopefully you catch that. That proves by itself from that verse that the word porneia has other meanings, other sins involved. So before we look at this kind of porneia, I want you to notice the magnitude of this sin. I grew up hearing that all sin is the same. Now, I don't want to go on record as, as saying that all sin is not sin. All sin is transgression of Yahweh's law. However, biblically, there are certain sins that are of greater magnitude than others. Okay? This verse proves that such is the case because Paul points out that this particular sin is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. It's not even condoned. It's not named. It's not found. It's not practiced among the, the Gentiles that we know. By the word Gentiles here, Paul means heathens, non-believers. People specifically in Corinth that did not belong to a congregation. 
a church, as we would call it. Here's another word that has multiple meanings, as most words do. And you need to learn this. When you study the Bible, you cannot see one word and think that it means one thing in every place that it's mentioned. The word Gentiles, for those of you that have studied that word, basically is probably better translated nations. And in this case, it's talking about unbelievers. Paul is saying there's a certain sin that's being practiced in the church that's not even practiced outside the church. That's the magnitude of the sin. Now the sin is, as we read at the end of verse 1, Paul tells us what the sin is. He says, a man is living with his father's wife. And obviously living with, in context, carries the meaning of living with in an immoral relationship. In Leviticus 18, 6-8, in the King James Version, we will see such sin named in the Holiness Code in the Old Covenant. Leviticus 18, 6-8 says this, None of you shall approach anyone who are his close relatives to uncover their nakedness. I am Yahweh. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, nor the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Leviticus 18 lists several forms of porneia if you read the whole chapter. But here at the top of the list, we have a couple forms that are listed in regards to uncovering the nakedness of close relatives. Uncovering the nakedness of is a euphemism. A euphemism means that you say something in a nicer way that might be a little harsh or blunt if you said it in another way. For the sake of illustration, for the sake of explanation, uncovering the nakedness of, in the King James Version, is a euphemism for having intercourse with. So Leviticus 18 verse 7 commands against a man uncovering the nakedness of his mother, but the next verse, verse 8, commands against a man uncovering the nakedness of his father's wife. The difference is that your father's wife may not be the same as your mother. Let me explain this by example. An example would be Jacob Israel in the book of Genesis. Jacob had 12 sons, but they came from four wives that Jacob had. Jacob's firstborn son was Reuben, born of his wife Leah, Genesis 29, verse 32. So that means Leah was Reuben's mama. But according to Genesis 35:22, Reuben uncovered the nakedness of Bilhah, his father's wife. Bilhah was only the mother of Dan and Naphtali. When you read the book of Genesis, she had two sons, the tribe of Dan, what will become the tribe of Dan, and also the tribe of Naphtali. Genesis 49 verse 4 says that Reuben got into his father's bed and he defiled it. In other words, Reuben uncovered the nakedness of Bilhah, his father's wife, which was a violation of Leviticus 18 verse 8. Reuben committed a grievous sin when he did that. Now, this also shows that one, this law in Leviticus 18 verse 8 existed back at the time of Genesis. As many, if not most, of Yahweh's moral laws did. And it also shows, too, that Paul believed that this law was binding under the New Covenant. We just got finished looking at 1 Corinthians 5. Paul calls it a sin. So the sin that Reuben committed back at the time of Genesis 
is the sin that's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. Let's read now verses 1 through 2 together. Paul writes, It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even condoned among the Gentiles, the heathens. A man is living with his father's wife and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. In verse 2, Paul is concerned with how the church has handled the issue of the man who is practicing and unrepentant in this sin. The Bible says that they're inflated with pride, puffed up with pride, instead of filled with grief. The reason I say puffed up is if you read the King James Version, it says puffed up. You're puffed up. The picture is somebody that is so prideful that they've been puffed with pride like you blow air into a balloon and it, and it gets bigger, it expands, it puffs up. Now, how were they inflated with pride? Let me share with you how I've always viewed this verse in the past. I've always read 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2 as saying that the other members in the Corinthian church were puffed up with pride because they're the ones that are not involved in the sin. In other words, they looked at the man living with his father's wife, they puffed out their chest, and they said, look at me. I'm righteous, and he's not. Now, I still think that's a legitimate interpretation. I'm going to get into a twofold interpretation here in just a moment. But I think that's a legitimate one, contextually. Self-righteousness and a pompous attitude is never the proper action for a believer in the Messiah. When we see a brother or a sister in the congregation fall into a sin, what I mean by that is fall into a sin means start practicing that sin. Even a grievous sin. It should not inflate our ego as though we've never sinned. We should instead feel grief over the situation. And our goal should be to restore that brother or that sister. That should be the goal. We should not stomp down on them or act pompous toward them but attempt to help them. We should desire for their deliverance from that sin. Not that they continue in it so that we can have a better than thou attitude and gossip about them. Paul's words to Galatians, to the Galatians in 6 and 1, ties nicely with this. Listen to what Paul writes. Brothers, notice brothers, to the congregation at Galatia. He's talking with people inside the congregation. Not outsiders, as we read in our opening text, but insiders. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you won't be tempted also. Paul here says that a spiritual brother or sister should seek to restore a brother or sister who has fallen into practicing a sin and to do so, how? With a gentle spirit. I think we miss that part a lot, the gentle spirit part. Paul warns all the believers that it could be you next. You may be the one next month or next year or five years from now to fall into a sin. So therefore, keep it gentle because next time you might have to be the one that gets rebuked. And if you're being rebuked, 
you're going to want a gentle spirit to rebuke you. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Keep yourselves humble. But Paul does say, address the sin. James 5, 19 through 20, has this to say on the matter. My brothers, congregation again, not outsiders, insiders. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't witness to outsiders. I'm not saying we shouldn't witness to unbelievers. But these passages are talking about people inside the congregation that stray away from the truth, that get caught in a wrongdoing. You know, it's easy for us to get caught up in our flesh, which we've all done at one point or another. And instead of following what the Bible says to do, we gossip about a brother and a sister who falls into sin. We complain to others about our brother or sister, and then we feel puffed up with pride that we're not the ones that have fallen into practicing that sin. But all of the above are the wrong attitude to have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2 that the proper response should be filled with grief. You're inflated with pride when you should be filled with grief. I don't have this in my notes, but I found some writings in the Antinocene Fathers, as they call them, where when someone in the congregation was caught in practicing an unrepentant sin in their life, that they looked at this text as filled with grief as a time to mourn, to weep, and to fast. Why? Because they love their brother or their sister. Their goal was not that the person remain in the sin, but they were filled with grief and they began to fast for their brother or sister that had fallen away from the faith into sin. These type of responses come from true believers who are heartbroken for their brother or sister who has fallen from the faith. And this brings us to Matthew 18. This is a second passage that I'm going to be centering in on in the next couple, two or three lessons. 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I just want to look at one verse in Matthew 18 in this lesson. It's the first of three steps that are outlined by Yeshua of Nazareth. When I say three steps, I I speak of three steps in disciplining brothers or sisters in the community or the congregation those who have fallen into a sin and who are living in unrepentance. What does Yeshua say is the first step? Look at it. I want to read it from the NIV. It says this. This is our Lord speaking. It says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. That's an instruction from our Messiah. The perfect instruction. When you see that a brother or sister is living in unrepentant immorality, not that you heard about it, not that there's a rumor going around, but you see it. There's eyewitnesses involved. The very first step should be to go to that person in private between just you and them. Yahweh loves when you do that. He loves it. The best thing you can do for that brother or sister is approach them in gentleness, Galatians 6.1, in private, Matthew 18.15, and rebuke them, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Yeshua says that if the person listens to the rebuke, guess what? 
You've won your brother or your sister. Again, the goal is restoration first. Not condemnation. Restoration. Not throwing somebody away right from the get-go, but going to them in private. Let me say this. Not even coming to the pastor about it. But if you see a brother or sister in the congregation living in unrepentant immorality, your first step is not to call Brother Matthew. You're to go to that brother or sister in private. And if you rebuke them with a gentle spirit and they receive it and they repent, weeping tears of repentance and have a change in lifestyle, nobody ever needs to know about it but you and them. That's how much Yahweh wants us to be loving towards our, our fellow congregants. Now, let me deal with a second way to understand the inflated with pride in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2. The Corinthians' pride, firsthand, remember, puffed up. We're not the ones that did it. They are. Look at them. Secondarily, it may have stemmed from how they were handling the situation of the unrepentant sin. In other words, they thought they were being loving and merciful by just letting the matter go unchecked. They knew the man was living with his father's wife. It was widely reported. Remember what Paul wrote? It's widely reported. They knew he was unrepentant. But they figured the loving thing to do was let's not address him in his sin. And they were prideful in thinking we're handling it right. We're being loving. We're being merciful. We're not going to address it. We're just going to let him be and be, he'll be fine. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how you handle it. See, Paul was more concerned with how the church handled this unrepentant sinner than the sin itself. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Sin inside of a church is not a surprise. It's not a surprise to Yahweh, and it shouldn't be a surprise to you. I sure hope you don't think that you're sinless. And I sure hope that you don't think that your pastor is sinless. I'm like Brother Jerry. I pray every day, forgive me for my sins and help me to forgive those that sin against me. I know I came yesterday, but I need you every day. (laughs) Saints are still sinners, but they're repentant sinners. And what I mean by repentant sinners is a saint who strives to obey the law of Yahweh, but still recognizes that he or she is flawed and needs to ask daily forgiveness for their transgressions. They recognize Yahweh's law. They want to obey Yahweh's law. They keep Yahweh's law, but they realize they're not perfect in Yahweh's law. So at the end of the day, no matter what kind of day you had, it could be the best day of your life spiritually, you still fall short from the perfection that's found in the law of Yahweh. So before you bow your head down on the pillow, or go to sleep on the pillow, you say, Father, forgive me for my trespasses. Even the ones I may not even know about. Forgive me of them and help me. Help me. The reason he says to do this is because he knows it's hard for us. Help me to forgive those who sin against me. How many of us sometimes it can be hard to forgive those that sin against us? I can raise both of my hands on that one. So we're to pray that. We're to pray that. Saints do not practice or live in unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians 5.2 The man was living with his father's wife. He had dropped out of the congregation. He was to be brought back into the fold through the right process. But whilst he was living in that unrepentant sin, he was not to be considered part of the congregation. 
sinners who are not saints practice sin like a doctor practices medicine. You want to know if somebody's not a saint? Look at their lifestyle. Do they care about the commandments of Yahweh? Are the commandments of Yahweh at the forefront of their life? Do they deal with everything in their life with Yahweh's law at the center of it? I want to obey the commandments. I know I fall short. Help me, Yahweh. I want to do better each and every day. But their desire is to be obedient to the law of Yahweh in the innermost core of their heart. That's how you know if somebody is really a saint. And we really should call each other saints. The Bible uses the term Christian, I think, three times. But it uses the term saints of New Covenant believers over 60 times. And the word saint means a holy one. A holy one. When we're in the congregation, in the Messiah, we're holy ones. We're saints. We don't practice sin. A sinner that's not a saint, that's not part of the congregation of heathen, they practice sin. They sin and they don't care. Saints can struggle with sin and still be a saint. A saint recognizes his or her failings, seeks help and strength from others, and desires to be more and more obedient to the commandments of Yahweh. That deserves to be repeated again. Listen to this. If you take notes or if you want to remember this, a saint, number one, recognizes his or her failings. Number two, seeks help and strength from others. Number three, desires to be more and more obedient to the commandments of Yahweh. So sin in a church is not a surprise. I had this thought today. Listen to this. Any long-term relationships that we have with each other, even as saints, whether it be a marriage relationship, friends, best friends, the only way it's going to stay a long-term relationship is if we're forgiving people. That's the only way. Because sooner or later, Brother Ron and I, if we're friends, sooner or later, I'm going to do something wrong to Brother Ron. And vice versa. And we're going to have to say, I'm sorry. Do you forgive me? Yes. And we hug. And we hug. Brother Ron says he forgives me. (laughs) Any long-term relationships that we have with each other, even as saints, is only going to be long-term if we're forgiving people. That's some good marriage counseling right there, ain't it, brothers and sisters? It really is. Forgiveness, love, covers a multitude of sins. I've been married now for going on almost 19 years. Been together with her, dating my wife, for longer than that, over 20. Is it 21 yet? Getting close to 21? She don't know, so I'm let off the hook. Good. (laughs) She'll tell you that I've not always been a good husband to her. And that's not because she's bad-mouthing me. It's just just being honest. We have a long-term relationship with each other. We've been married for that long. You know why? Because we've learned how to forgive. And it's the same thing with best friends. My point is this. Brothers and sisters will have to forgive you for sinning against them and you will have to forgive your brother or sister for sinning against you. I'm talking about in the family of Yahweh. In the family of Yahweh. Let me prove this from the Bible. I've done a lot of talking here for the past few minutes. Let me prove this from the Bible. Here's how Yeshua put it. Luke 17, 3-4. Be on your guard. If your brother, brother, congregation, insider, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. 
Verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That verse proves that a brother can sin against you seven times in one day and still be your brother. He's still your brother. But this brother is one that catches himself after he sins. See, a heathen, they don't catch themselves. They don't care. I know people that steal and don't think nothing about it. But a brother catches himself after he sins. You may think, well, he's not much of a brother if he sins against me seven times in one day. But that is the flesh. That's the carnal man. the, the son of Adam coming out. Yeshua says, if he repents each time, you must, not might, you must forgive him. Seven times in one day. Let me say this before I move on. Look at this quote from N. Eccleston. Commentary on Luke 17, 3-4. He says, quote, It's hard to forgive someone who has greatly offended us, especially if it's more than once. But how can we not forgive when we ask His forgiveness daily over and over? Good quote, good quote. So sin should not be a surprise to us. Sin was not a surprise to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul was rather concerned with how the church was dealing with this unrepentant sin and sinner. The man living with his father's wife was wrong. That was sin, unrepentant sin, okay? Paul was more concerned with the church. You're not handling this right. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2, we're not dealing with a brother who sins, feels terrible, asks for forgiveness, repents, and strives not to practice the sin. That's not who we're dealing with. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, we're instead dealing with a man who is called a brother, but refuses to repent of the sin that he is living in. Practicing. Go back to the doctor, practicing the medicine, way of life. Paul is saying that the church needed to deal with this situation differently than they would a repentant brother. Instead, they were prideful in how they were dealing with it. They were not filled with grief. They were dealing with it the wrong way. Notice verse 2 again as I close for today. And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that, it's important, those two words, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. Paul's point is is that the church should have dealt with this unrepentant man by being first filled with grief, mourning, weeping, fasting. They want him to be part of the congregation, but he's unrepentant. But then, if he still doesn't repent in that grief, they're called to remove him from the congregation. Now, this has to mean that there's some type of church membership. I'm not talking about filling out a letter or anything like the church world does now, but there's some type of unwritten reality that certain people are the member of a congregation. You know, I consider people members of this congregation that actively participate in the congregation. One of the things that we're called to do is attend church service. Now, that does not mean if you're sick with the flu that you have to come to church. Matter of fact, I would recommend that you stay home <laughs> so we don't shake your hand and get germs everywhere. You know, And we have a phone ministry for people that you know can't come in, in those things. It doesn't mean that if you know, you're on vacation that Brother Matthew gets mad if you're not at church. What I'm saying is this, is that if you're a member of this congregation, coming to the congregation should be something you practice. 
Okay, they should have dealt with this unrepentant man by being filled with grief, and then in that grief, remove him from the congregation. In this case, someone must have went. That's the point I wanted. In this case, someone must have went to the man in private, but he refused to accept correction. Now, why do I say that? The reason I say that is because in 1 Corinthians 5, notice Paul is telling him he's at the point where he needs to be removed. That has to mean that these steps in Matthew 18 have already been followed. But he's not listening. We'll get to it more in detail in the next lesson, but Yeshua says if the person doesn't listen, the next step is you take with you a group. It's kind of like an intervention. You take a group of people with you and you try to go with a gentle spirit to ask that brother to repent. You rebuke that brother with a group with more than one witness. In hopes of what? That he repents. Not to stomp him down, but in hopes that he listens. He breaks down and he repents. Then, if he still doesn't listen, then you bring it, at that point, you bring it before the church, the congregation, in hopes of what? That he repents. That he repents. You're still wanting him to repent. But if he still doesn't listen, then he is to be to you like a heathen or a tax collector, Yeshua says. So at such point, this brother was at such a point where certain matters had already, certain steps had already been taking place and there needed to be action from the assembly. And according to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2, as you see on the screen, that action was to remove the unrepentant brother from the congregation. This would make it clear to him, to that brother, if he's going to stay unrepentant after these steps have been taken care of, he cannot live in that relationship with his father's wife and still be considered a brother or a saint inside the church. And even at this point, when the church does this to this man, it's still a grieving matter. It's not that you're thankful. It's that your heart aches for him because you want to see him as part of the congregation. But he refuses. He loves his sin more than he loves Yahweh. Now, thus we begin to see why Paul quoted Deuteronomy 17, verse 7 at the end of 1 Corinthians 5. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. In 1 Corinthians 5, 13b, that's exactly what Paul says. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. Paul was applying the old covenant law of capital punishment to the new covenant church, but not identically. The principle was applied in the form of excommunicating, removing an unrepentant brother or sister from the congregation. Now, the next time I teach, we'll get more into exegeting 1 Corinthians 5. So, for today, let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your love. We thank You for Your Word. I pray that we would receive Your Word, we believe Your Word, and practice Your Word. Um, May the scriptures that I cited be ingrained into the minds and the hearts of the people today. And may we, uh, may we love your word above what we won't think. And may we love your word and your law more than our sin. Help us all, Yahweh Father. Forgive us for our sins. Help us to be a repentant people. We pray these things through your Son.